0: All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. If anybody else shows up, that'll be great. But Romans chapter 8 is where we'll be briefly. Everything we're going to be doing this morning for Sunday school is Lydia and Sarah Danzler's fault. Because they asked for this to occur. So, if anybody does not like this, do not come to me. Yeah, we're speaking up for the rest of everyone else. We'll see. We'll see. I I have a feeling everyone else is going to be like, nope, we didn't want to do that. All right, Romans chapter 8. I know we typically are, we have been doing this for um, more, more for the, where we would do the sermon is where we've been in Romans. We've been in Romans now, I don't know how long. I don't even remember. Does anybody remember where the first sermon was in Romans? Okay, yeah, it was the last, it's been a couple, it's been years. I don't even know where we started. Yeah, I don't even remember where we started. So we've been in Romans chapter 8 now for a considerable length of time. And what have we been doing in Romans chapter 8? Six words. What What are those six words we've been studying in Romans chapter 8? Foreknowledge, predestination, called, justification, glorification, and election. Okay. And we know, and we decided that we probably should add a seventh, but why did we not add the seventh word? It doesn't appear in the text, okay? And very important principle. A lot of times people will take their, their theology and impose the theology upon the text. You never want to impose your theology upon the text. The theology, the theology should arise From the text, okay? So it doesn't mean that we can't study this word. We just want to realize it's not actually found in Romans chapter 8, okay? But the concept becomes very important. And what concept have we been looking at? Reprobation, the doctrine of reprobation. So that's what we're going to continue to work on. But in our study of the doctrine of reprobation, what subject did we find ourselves kind of stumbled upon and we have to work on? The order of God's decrees, all right? The order of God's decrees. Now, we're getting, I know, I, I know this gets, well, I mean, for this church, it's probably not unusual. If you're visiting, you may be like, what in the world is all of this? But we definitely go deep with uh, systematic theology, church history, and we, we have no problem going as deep as we need to go because the point of the church is to equip saints so they're not tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. And what's a good way not to be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine? You hear all the winds of doctrines here. This is where you hear them. This is where we talk about them. This is where we study them. So we're going to be working on this. We have a lot to do. So thinking caps on. And so here's what happened. We were looking at the doctrine of reprobation. We started kind of talking about God's decrees. And then Sarah and Lydia asked last Sunday, what question did you ask? I don't think I know the order of God's decrees. And I was like, What? And so I'm like, okay, let's work on this. So let's, let's try to think about this. When we think about the order of God's decrees, we are thinking of a kind of a logical progression of how certain aspects of salvation could have occurred. All right. However, when we understand God's decree, we understand God's decrees take place when? An eternity past. So in a roundabout way, what we are doing is we're taking this very important concept and we're really, in a sense, going, in a sense, to heaven to figure out how things could have possibly worked in a logical progression in eternity past. Now you say, well, what does that have to do with how things appear here? Well, there's lots of dispute in 2,000 years of church history when we start talking about the doctrine of salvation, yes? Especially when we mention what kind of words? Foreknowledge, predestination, election, called justification. Because what questions start arising when we start bringing in those words? Well, if God foreknows, right, and if God predestines, well, wait a minute. How does this work? And is this fair? Is this right? Is this just? And it starts raising all kinds of questions. And remember, I have stated so many times, where should your problem... And everyone, when they get to Romans chapter 8, everyone gets upset. It will split churches. People get mad. Everyone should calm down because where should your problems really begin? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Why should your problems begin there? Because as soon as you read, in the beginning, God created... And if you've read anything that happens after that creation, and if you watch the news and look at your world today, you're going to be like, there's a part of you when you're reading it wants to say what? It says, in the beginning, God, and you want to say, no, no, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, because I know what's getting ready to happen. And so you have to go, well, wait a minute. Did God know what was going to happen? Well, if he knew what was going to happen, why did he do it? Did he have the power to change how things were going to occur? And so then you start having all of these deep philosophical questions and problems that people have struggled with for 2,000 years. Sometimes, to try to answer some of these problems, people will go all the way back, in a sense, to eternity past to look at this concept of God's decrees and try to find some way that will make sense or make it more comfortable for them to try to figure these things out. So that I'm, that, I'm trying to summarize all of this to the best of my ability so that we can, we can move on. But so does that make sense for everyone? All right, let's just jump in. Let's deal with the doctrine of reprobation. Let's just remind ourselves what this doctrine is, and then we're going to jump into God's decrees and everything else, all right? When we understand the election as God's sovereign choice of some persons to be saved, then there is necessarily another aspect of that choice. Namely, God's sovereign decision to pass over others and not to save them. This decision of God in eternity past is called what? Reprobation. So, what was our definition of reprobation? Some persons in sorrow. All right, good job. I'll read it again for people listening online and for anyone here who doesn't have this down. All right, everybody ready? Here we go. Reprobation is the sovereign decision of God before creation to pass over some persons in sorrow, deciding not to save them and to punish them for their sins and thereby to manifest his what? His justice. Okay, now... Let's just remember. I want to make sure everybody understands this. One of the things I love to do is there's, there's teaching theology and there's doing theology, right? Teaching theology, someone just takes a theological system and then preaches it to everyone as if it's a dogmatic fact, right? Throw out some supporting scripture and everybody says, amen, that's great. I've tried to get this church way past the learning theology to doing what? Doing theology, where we do what? How, what what's the idea of doing theology? We take a concept and we do what with that concept? Question it, challenge it, test it. Create a hypothesis or a thesis and then try to see, does that hold water? So at this point, I've just tried to give you an understanding of the doctrine of reprobation without making any claims of whether it's true, not true. I just want you to understand that this teaching has been present within the church for a very, very long time, right? And so we have to understand why this is there. And why, would, why in the early church did they come up with the idea of reprobation? Because they had to understand, wait a minute. This person is saved, this person isn't saved, what's the difference? And then this leads to all kinds of other issues, right? So we started working on all of this. So this brings us to the idea of God's decrees, okay? I've got a lot of notes, and you know that's always scary, right? Okay, but we're going to go as fast as as we can, all right? Just a couple of thoughts here. The order of God's decrees, according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory, he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Everybody got that definition? All right, I'll I'll read slow. His eternal purpose, according to the counsel of what? His will, just please stress that, whereby for his own glory, he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. That's from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Now, that sounds good, doesn't it? Everybody can say amen to that? Yes or no? We want to say amen to that, but let's be honest. Does that not raise like a million philosophical problems? Right? If you're sitting in a philosophy class in any university, they're going to be like, wait, whoa, I got up 900 problems here. I understand nobody likes it because it raises some difficult issues. Because when you start talking about whatsoever comes to pass, can you think of some bad things that's come to pass? And you're like, well, wait a minute. But if, God is not in charge of it, then who is? And if God is not in charge and something else is going, operating outside of God's power, God's will, God's control, then in a roundabout way, that other thing becomes stronger than God or becomes God. So it creates a whole bunch of, of problems and issues. Just remember that definition because all, all week for our Bible study exercise, we've been working on Genesis 39. When we think of Genesis 37 to Genesis 40, really Genesis 37 to the end of Genesis, this concept is going to become very, very, very important in a practical way. So think of Sunday school as laying the theological foundation for what we're going to look at in a practical way in the next hour. All right? So don't forget this definition. All right? Do I need to read it again? His eternal purpose. Yeah, if you uh, have the Trinity hymnal. Page eight fifty of the Trinity Hymnal. If everybody wants to grab one, the, the red Trinity Hymnal. Let's see if there. Here's one. Yeah, page eight fifty. Thank you, Stephen. Right. Is it the exact words, or is it uh, stated stated a little differently? His eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. All right? What? Well, the, his glory is important, okay? But it's pretty close, pretty similar, okay? We get the basic idea? His glory, okay. Yeah, so I'm just putting them all together. All right, putting them all together, All right. Now, what's the most important thing here? When we think of God's decrees... What three things do we need to really think about when it comes to God's decrees? God's decrees are based on His will, His glory, His way. Now, nobody likes that. Because we all want what? Our way, our will, and our glory. And not just teenagers, the adults too, right? Sometimes when... Teenagers and parents may fight over way, will, right, and glory, but it, it's, it's true of all of us. God's way, God's will, God's glory, and we're like, nope, my way, my will, my glory. And, and, and really, if you think about this, the whole Christian life is really transitioning from a mindset of my way, my will, my glory, to deny self, die to self, and no longer follow self. That's really the Christian life in a nutshell. If you're going to advance as a Christian, you have to learn that it's not about your way, it's not about your will, it's not about your glory, it's about His. And that's, that's a never-ending battle. Because I don't know about you, I still want my way, still want my will, and I would like to, to receive some glory. And you can, I mean, I would assume you're all the same way. Yes, so this is very important, and this is why I want to just make sure I understand that studying these decrees it seems like this big academic thing, but it has practical implications. Practical implications, which we will definitely see in the next hour. All right? Now, in discussing the order of decrees, we are referring to the logical relationship of the various aspects of God's one eternal purpose regarding the creation, predestination, and salvation of man. So when we're referring to his decrees, what are we looking at? The logical relationship of various aspects of salvation. Is that an easier way to s- summarize it? All right. I have a ten- For the visitors, I have a tendency to walk, so don't. Okay. All right. They're getting nervous. Like, where is he going? Okay. <laughs> right. I never stand behind the pulpit very long. Okay. It's there to hold my books. Okay. All right. Yeah. I just walk around it. Yeah, okay. So in discussing the order of decrees, what are we referring to? Logical relationship of the various aspects of God's one eternal purpose regarding salvation. Is that, does that work? I mean, we have to put creation in there as well, but you get the idea. Why, why do I say one eternal purpose? Because when we think of the decrees, we may see like, okay, there, let's say we list seven decrees. Just realize they all are part of of God's one eternal purpose. We're just understanding the logical order of that one purpose. That may seem confusing, but you'll see why it's important in a minute. Okay, And really, there's entire different streams of theology that are based on how you understand God's decrees. Like if we went from, if we, if we went on a field trip today and went from church to church to church to church, within a couple of minutes, if you know what to look for, you're like, okay, that's that stream. That's what they believe about God's decree. Okay, that's what they believe about God's decrees. You can pick it up relatively quick, all right? So the, the Christianity has been divided over this very important issue. The sad part, a lot of people sitting in the, in the pew have no understanding of even what is going on about these, these subjects, all right? So everybody got that? The primary interest in the decrees of God usually relates to an understanding of divine predestination or divine election and its place in God's plan of redemption. Simply put, nobody cares about this subject until when? Until you get to Romans 8. <laughs> okay? Then, then all of a sudden everyone cares. Where should you start caring about these issues? Genesis chapter 1 is really where you should start caring about these issues. But nobody cares because it, they didn't hear those bad words like election or predestination that everybody loses their minds over. And everybody gets upset. We should really, these issues start in Genesis. Everybody, it starts in Genesis. I, I, I could re-preach that, but you get the idea. Okay? Now, there's a lot more here. Um, Understanding God's decrees can be very important and understanding the differences between, let's say, Pelagianism, Arminianism, and Calvinism. Okay, oh, there's so much more here I want to look, go through. All right, but um, we're, I'm going to do a little bit of review here and then we're going to get to the actual order. All right, got to hurry. Okay. So in dealing with all of these issues, we started looking at some specific systems of theology and some specific systems of, the, of thought. And what was the first view we looked at? The Pelagian view. The Pelagian view. All right? Everybody need, Every person should know Pelagianism. Pelagianism was a major heresy in the early church. It was condemned. And Pelagianism, what were the two major systems that were fighting each other in the early church? Augustinian view and the Pelagian view, all right? Which view Which view was condemned in the early church? Pelagian view. Which view won? Pelagian won, right? And how did Pelagian ultimately win? Just over time, the church became more... What was really the turning point where kind of a Pelagian view really dominated the church? If you're going through church history, right? Because if we go through church history, Augustine wins, yes, Okay, the church moves on the Augustinian view dominates, 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 dominates and then what one major event really kind of I will argue and I know not everyone would agree with this perspective from church history but I think I can prove it was the kind of where the dam broke and it was the end it was the, it was the council you know how I love studying church councils oh come on if Sarah Dansler gets this wrong, she gets ex- excommunicated uh, say it Council of Trent, why would the Council of Trent be uh, important here? It was a counter reformation right, counter reformation, and the Council of Trent responded to the Reformation that obviously started with Luther and. And kind of a weird way, I know they would disagree with this from a Catholic perspective, but they really brought in a very semi-Pelagian kind of understanding into the church. And, and a lot of people will say, well, we're not Catholic. They hold to a Pelagianism that really is the result of the Council of Trent. Okay, now we could, we could spend hours proving that, but you get the idea. All right, when it comes to Pelagian, what are some basic things about the Pelagian view? Number one, it's a naturalistic view as opposed to a supernaturalistic view of salvation. What do we mean by a naturalistic view versus, versus a supernaturalistic view? Okay. Right, the question is right. So we got Lydia, we got Emma. Say Emma saved, Lydia's not saved. What, okay. Right. Now the question is, and let's say we all we we got everyone here and we had a meeting. Okay. Okay. Lydia saved, Emma's not saved. Okay. Why? 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 Why did this happen? Right? And we try to make a determination of why it would happen. Now some may say, Well, have you seen their parents? Okay, we're lucky that any of them got saved. Right? So we may blame the parents. Right? Or we may say, Well, Emma's pretty smart, and Lydia, well, we're not so sure about. Maybe maybe because Emma's smarter. Maybe Emma's smarter. And Lydia didn't like that that illustration. Okay. Right. We may go with that direction. And we could come up, well, we could come up with all kinds of excuses and reasons. The Pelagian view places the responsibility where? They're going to place it on the parents. They may place it on the individuals, but the reason Emma got saved is because of Emma. It's a naturalistic view. The, another view would be like, the reason Emma got saved is because of God, which would be a supernatural. View Does everybody understand that basic difference? That basic difference? OK, because that's very important. Right? Uh, the primary issue between the naturalist and the supernaturalist may be summed up in one question: Does man save himself, or does God save him? In purity, Pelagianism affirms that all the power exerted in saving a man is native to man himself. So, salvation is a work of man. Now, that, they may try to word it differently, but when you get down to it, why did Emma get saved? Because Emma did something. Emma believed. Emma figured it out. Emma understood it. Emma was smarter than, than her sister. And the Pelagian view. And the Pelagian view, all right? That's pure Pelagianism, okay? Then we move to semi Pelagianism. Semi Pelagianism is a mild improvement. But it is still what? Naturalistic, right? And so what did they say? Okay, Emma Emma saved herself, but who helped her? God helped her. Now, what's the immediate question? Well, if God helped Emma, why didn't he help Lydia? Now, in this case, they will say, well, God helps, but Lydia refused, and Emma chose. Well, then the question, well, why did Emma... Choose and Lydia. Well, because then it would be like something is better about Emma than Lydia. You see where it still becomes a very. You see why it still becomes naturalistic. All right. I just want you to make sure you understand that. All right. Then the next view and oh, uh, where were Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism condemned? Council of Orange, what year? Five twenty-nine. Okay. Then what was the next view? The Arminian view. All right. And what does the Arminian view come in and how did they handle it? Okay, they they come up with the idea of a prevenient grace. Everybody remember what prevenient grace means? Yeah, there's a grace God gives that precedes conversion that is supposed, in a sense, to help, but still, ultimately, who's the one making the decision? Still man, but the Arminian would say What? They would say they're not a naturalistic view. They're supernatural because of God's prevenient grace, which is given to people in order to try to help them get saved. But ultimately, who's still the one making the decision? The individual. All right. There's the Arminian view. Okay. And where was the Arminian view really dealt with in church history? Oh, come on. I got to know this. Senate of Dort. What years? 1618, 1619. All right. Then that brings us to the next view. What's the next view? Emerald D N view. Emerald That's A M Y R A L D I A N. or the Emerald D N view. All right, Emerald D N view. And the Emerald D N view or Emerald Deism. What was its? What, give me a basic summary of it. It's a compromise between Calvin, Calvinism and Arminianism. And what does it try to claim? Okay, now this is where everything gets crazy, okay? The Emeraldian view goes directly at what issue? The order of God's decrees. And they want to change the order and orders for it not to be so offensive. They don't like because the Calvinistic view they felt was too offensive and would run, basically, push people out of the church. So they're like, we've got to find a way to compromise here. And so they change the order of God's decree. Now, I want to make it understand, Pelagian has an order of decrees, right? The Armenians have an order of decrees, and so does the Emeraldian D- view have an order of decrees. But with the first time we really hear this is in the Emeraldian view we start hearing. So I'm just going to read a little bit about it, and then we're going to start working on the order. All right, does this make sense? All right, the Emeraldian view developed when? After the Synod of Dvor- D- Dort, as a compromise between which two groups? Calvinism and Arminianism. And by giving up what was perceived as some of the harshness of Calvinism. The Emeraldian view was named after whom? A French theologian, Moses Emerot, right? And he lived between 1569 and 1664. All right. it, it's associated with Calvinism because it retains a particular element by acknowledging God's distinguishing grace and election of individuals. The logic of the Emeraldian view places divine election after what? After the decree to provide an atonement. Now, why is this important? Very good. All right. This, okay, make sure everybody, when we think of the atonement, all right, okay, thinking caps on, the atonement. Jesus dies on the cross for people's sins, okay? When he died on the cross for people's sins, did he die for everyone's sins? Now, if we say yes, what's the illogical problem? Why isn't everyone saved? So then people say, well, because they don't believe. So then I would say, well, is unbelief a sin? Well, if Jesus died for all sins, why didn't he die for the sin of unbelief? Therefore, everyone should be saved. So this gets into a discussion of the atonement. That would be what kind of atonement that I just described? Jesus dying for everyone. Universal atonement. What was the Calvinistic view? A particular atonement, or what, what's the bad word that people get upset about? Limited atonement. Well, limited means this. Jesus died for every person that will become saved because the atonement actually did what? Actually atone. Right? It actually, it didn't just say, here's atonement, it's kind of available, come and get it if you can. No, because that's not really making an atonement. He actually died for people's sins, but he died for the sins of the people who will be saved. Now, everybody gets upset about it and go, this is horrible. Just remember, this is dealing with how salvation works from a heavenly perspective. From an earthly perspective, how does it work? I take the gospel and I preach it to whom? Everyone. I tell them to do what? Repent and believe. If they believe... Obviously, Christ provided an atonement for them, okay, right? Does that make sense? Like, people get so upset about it. And practice, it's not as controversial as everyone makes it out to be. This is dealing with how it works from a philological perspective. Some people can only see, well, wait a minute. In practice, that would mean I shouldn't preach to everyone. No, you preach to everyone because what do we not know? We don't know how it works in heaven, right? We just see people who are creating the image of God who are sinners who need what? salvation. We, we preach the gospel and then how all of that works from an eternal perspective, that's on God, that's not on us. We, under, we try to understand it. Why would we even try to understand it? Because some people will say, well, what's the point of even figuring it out? Because it's mentioned where? Here. So if it's mentioned, then it's our responsibility to understand it. Okay? No matter how complicated it may be. Some people are like, I don't like all this complicated stuff. Just keep it simple. Well, if you just want to keep it simple, you probably want to just kind of put away your Bible and never read it again. Because there's lots of complicated issues in it, right? Just like in Romans 8. It deals with all of these issues. And, 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 it's going to, and election is going to talk about, it's going to then refer to Israel, and it's, it's going to get more and more complicated when we get to chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11. It's not going to get easier. So we've got to fix these problems now. Okay, So the Emerald Dean view, this is what they're like, wait, if you say the atonement is limited, that's so mean. We can't say that. So what did they do? The atonement was what? Universal, so then they place election where? After the atonement, so then the atonement is for everyone, but God only elects some, and they think somehow that fixes the problem. Okay, They're four point Calvinists, exactly. All right? That's the Emerald D in view. And you'll hear some Baptists say we're four-point Calvinists. No, they're Emeraldeans. That's what they are. Okay? They don't even realize it. Now, all of that gets us to where we need to go. Are you ready? Well, this is gonna get confusing, but that's okay. Now, there's more we need to cover, but I'm gonna skip it, right, Because we need to bring in infralapsarian, we need to bring in sublapsarian, but we're gonna we're gonna skip all of that. All right? We're gonna go to the orders. Okay? Thinking caps on? All right. Let's go to the Armenian Order of God's Decrees. The Armenian Order of God's Decrees. Here we go. Every I know I know a lot of people don't realize this but yes, every stream of theology has their own order. This is what drives me crazy. Someone will be like, well, I don't like all that reformed theology. It's too complicated. It's too academic. And I'm like, so I'm going to go to a church that's just more simple. Well, you may go to a church that's quote unquote more simple, but guess what? it's still based on a stream of theology that addressed all of these issues at somewhere in church history. The fact that churches don't study church history is kind of devastating and kind of sad and that's why you see churches constantly repeating the errors of the past because they don't know the errors of the past. We've got to be able to identify the different streams of theology because whether you like it, you've been influenced by it. What do I always say in this church? Ignorance of church history does not negate its influence upon you. Just because you don't know it doesn't mean you're not influenced by it. I listen to you talk, and I'm like, oh, I know where that influence came from. Or you listen to preaching, you're like, oh, I know where... They may not even know the influence, but you can hear the influence. Does that make sense? All right, here we go. Everybody ready? Whoever can remember all of these will, will be considered really smart. Okay, here we go. I don't know what... You, you don't get anything, but you'll be considered really smart. Here we go. The Armenian view. The Arminian view is based on basically the insistence of Jacobus Arminius on conditional election and arrange the decrees as follows. All right, number one, God decrees to create the world. So in the Arminian view, what does God decree first? Creation. He decides he's going to create the world. Now, I will make sure you understand this. Please don't, please don't put these decrees, don't think of them from a human perspective, right? You wake up during the day and you're like, okay, I think I'm going to do this first, and I'm going to do this second. Just remember, in a roundabout way, these these decrees have always been in the mind of God throughout all eternity, because it's not like he just woke up one day and go, I think I'll decide to do this. It's always been there. But we have to understand it in some kind of logical progression. Does that make sense? All right, so, he decides to do what first? Creation. Now, what's the, what's the question that any good Bible student should have the minute we say, God decided to create the world? Right? We could say, why? That's a good question. Why did he decide to create the world? What's the uh, biblical answer? For his, For his glory. Don't ever forget that. For his glory. I know, I know we need, we need a, you know, a breaking news alert. Okay, breaking news alert. The world does not revolve around you. Okay, because we do a lot of a lot of our talking is about what? Us. Us. How many times in a day do you talk about? But I want this. I want this. You made me feel this way. Me, 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 me. We do a lot of talking about us. Just remember, God's decree to create the world was not creating the world so that everything could be about you. He created the world for his Glory. You may not like that. You may say I don't that's not fair. Well, that's fine. You just run off and go create your own world and you can make it about you, but I don't think you're gonna be able to pull that off. Because this is where you live, right? So in the Armenian view, what does he decree first? Creation. Number two, what do you think the next thing he he? I love the way they do this. It's so oh, this gets so crazy. Okay. He decrees the creation of the world. What do you think Arminians say is next? Nobody can, nobody, no guesses? All right, okay, I'm disappointed here. Okay, all right. Number two, listen to the way this is worded. He decrees the creation of the world, but the second thing he does is not a decree. Which is really weird since this is the order of God's decrees. But they cannot stand the next event. What happens after the creation in Genesis? The fall. They don't want God decreeing the fall. So what do you think they do? No. They write down God's foreknowledge of the fall. Why why do they word it that way? They want to get God off the hook. Now I understand this. Look. Look, when it gets to theology and you're... Look, when we read the Bible, there's, con, there's constantly, we come across verses where we struggle with sometimes what God does. I know we're not supposed to ever say that in church, but let's be honest. I, and, I, and I do it all the time in preaching. When, we're, when we go through a text of scripture, sometimes I'm like, and you're going to hear it in the next hour. Sometimes I'm like, what are you... Why? Why? What are you doing? It doesn't make any sense to me. Now, is it supposed to make sense to me? Some, it, God, does God care if it makes sense to me? No. But it's okay to ask the questions. I want to make sure it's okay to ask the questions. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to read the Bible and go, Why? I don't, I don't understand this. When, has anyone ever read the book of Job? Well, I started reading Job. I'm like, What is going on? Right? I mean, who sets up the entire thing in Job? God sets up the entire thing. The last thing, it's like when you read Job, you know what's the last thing I don't want God to ever mention? Is me. Because as soon as he mentioned Job, death and destruction. That's horrible to read. It's okay to struggle with it. Like, I know it's church and we're just supposed to say all the right, but it's okay if we don't, if we don't struggle with it. Then especially as young people, young people are taught just never question it, never struggle with it. Then they go into the world and then they boom, they get hit with the questions and the struggles and they're like, "Wait a minute, I never thought about that." Well, because all you did as a young person in church is eat pizza and have fun. You didn't get you got to you got to struggle with these questions. Because God created the world. Now, please not the way they did this. So what would be the obvious question here? If God created the world, what would be the next question? Did he know the fall was going to occur? The answer would be yes. Did he have the power to stop it? Yes. Okay. Now, the Arminians, they don't want God decreeing it. So they just say God foreknew it. Now, what? it's even weird they put it in this order because did God know the fall before he created the world? I think everybody would say yes. Okay. So they kind of put it like he creates it, then he foreknows the fall is going to occur. It's kind of just like, but that's okay. Let's just go with this idea. All we want to know is the Arminian view. Okay, so no, number one, what's the first thing in their decree? Creation. Second, it's not a decree. foreknows the fall. Number three. What do you think number three is going to be? Oh, come on. God decrees to send his son as a savior for those who would repent, believe, and persevere. That <laughs> Depending on how you understand that decree, there's a, major, there's a lot of major issues here, okay? Especially the last part of that, but we'll, we'll get into it. So let me read that again. I'm, I'm stating it like you already know these, but obviously the reason I'm teaching this is because you asked me because you didn't know these, okay? God's decree to send... So the next thing is God decrees to send his son as savior... For those who repent, believe, and persevere. Now this gets very much into an Arminian idea that what is required for you to be saved? You've got to basically keep yourself saved. Now we do believe in perseverance, but we we persevere how? God keeps us, not us keeping ourselves, because what is our salvation based upon? This is so important. Our salvation is based on what? What we do, well, I'll make sure everybody gets. If you don't, we talk about this all the time. We are saved because we possess an imputed righteousness that's been accredited to our account. I stand before God, how perfect, holy, without sin, because God's God's righteousness has been provided to me by faith. Christ's passive and active obedience has been imputed to my account. So before God, I am perfect, I am holy, I'm obedient, I am righteous. Am I that practically? No. I fall short. So what do we always cling to for our salvation? The imputed righteousness. My perseverance has to be based off an imputed righteousness, not on a practical righteousness, because my practical righteousness will never be sufficient to please a holy God. I can make it very simple. One of God's commands is to be holy as... He is holy. Anybody ever fulfilled that for two seconds? If someone doesn't raise their hand, we're going to get you some help immediately. Okay? Because you haven't. All right? Love the Lord that God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Has anybody ever pulled that off? No. All right? So then how am I going to stand? Be uh, persevere? Because of the imputed righteousness. Because in Christ, guess what I, I am? I am as holy as God is holy because I have the holiness of God imputed in my account. Did the... Did Jesus love the Father with all of his heart, mind, body, and soul? Yes. So guess what? That's imputed to my account. So that's how I stand. The, the Arminian places the responsibility based on your salvation is based upon you, and what else is responsible? You keeping your salvation is based upon you. Right? But God decrees to send his son as Savior for those who repent, believe, and persevere. What's the fourth decree? Well, we can't even really call it the fourth decree because the second one is not even really a decree, but that's okay. The fourth decree, God decrees to provide means to enable repentance and faith. What's another word for number four? What's what's another word for number four? Starts with a P. Provenient grace. All right, so here's God. He looks down. He sees everybody. He's like, okay, I'm going to decree and provide them the ability to do what? To repent and to believe. He's going to provide the ability. Now, let's go back. If we go all the way back to Pelagius, how did Pelagius handle your ability? God doesn't have to provide it. You already have it. You never lost the ability to repent or to believe. That's the Pelagian view. The Arminian view is like, well, no, the fall did happen. But then God, because of his prevenient grace, says, he looks at everybody and is like, here you go. Now you have the ability. 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 Does that make sense? Yeah. Everyone. Because in a sense, it goes to everyone and then everyone has that ability. So God, in a sense, provided prevenient. Now, there may be some variations in certain parts of Arminianism, but I'm just going to go in a general direction, okay? All right? Does everybody got that? So what's the first decree? Let's go through them quickly. Creation, number two. It's a foreknowledge of the fall. Number three, decree to basically send the son so that you can believe and that you can perse- and repent and persevere. Next, He provides a way for you to believe and to repent. Right? He provides a way. Number five, God's foreknowledge. Please note they go back to foreknowledge and remove the word decree. God's foreknowledge of which individuals will repent and believe. Why do they remove decree again? Because they don't want God decreeing who's going to repent and believe. They want you decreeing if you're going to believe and you're going to repent. Isn't that kind of a weird way to do this? Hey, here's a decree. Well, now no, here's just God foreknowing it. I think that's fair. I think that's a fair way of saying it. Yes. But your choice, your choice, right. Does that make sense? I mean, I, I mean obviously we would disagree, but yeah. Just make sure you understand that that's the way they put, it, they, they put this forward. All right? So far, so good? Right? Now, we could talk all day about this foreknowledge. I, I just got to try to finish this so that we can at least understand it, okay? All right. God's dec- so that's uh, number one was God's decree to recreate. Number two, foreknowledge of the fall. Number three, Decree to send a Son. Number four, decree to provide a means to enable repentance and faith. Number five, God's foreknowledge of which individuals will repent and believe. And then number six, God's decree to save those who believe, do good works and persevere, and to condemn those who do not. Now God decrees to save those who do what? Believe, and what's the next word? And do good works. And persevere. God decrees to save comes where? At the end. Of who will believe. Yeah, they don't put decree there. Then... He decrees to save those who believe and who do good works and who persevere. And he condemns those who do not believe, who do not do good works, and who do not persevere. All right, we're not going to get to the Amradian view, but that's okay. All right. Now the main criticism of the Arminian order is that at key points, God's sovereign will is replaced by his mere foreknowledge of human will. Did everyone see that in the decrees? Whenever they wanted to remove God, they just replaced sovereignty or decree with what? Foreknowledge. Hey, God didn't decree it. God just knew it. But let me make this very clear. If God knows it and doesn't do anything about it, then clearly he has decreed it because he knew it was going to happen before it was happened and he doesn't do anything to either stop it or he does that which is to help it. So it, it doesn't really fix the problem, but in their minds, they've got to get God out of this as much as possible. Why do they got to get God removed from this as much as possible? It seems what? Come on, from a human perspective, we can say it. Seems wrong, seems unfair. Doesn't seem just. From a human perspective, it's okay to say that. We, we can struggle with that. Remember, you know, if you... When we read the Bible, we are confronted with things we don't like. We can acknowledge our dislike of it. The key is, are we going to ultimately submit ourselves to it? Amen? I I hope that makes sense, okay? So the main criticism of the Arminian order is that at key points, they, they take God's sovereignty and they replace it with what? Mere foreknowledge. The result is that it renders God contingent man will ultimately decide who and, who is and who will not be saved. This approach is contrary to the Bible's teaching that salvation is ultimately results from God's will being done. Let's just look at a couple of scriptures really quick. Everybody ready? Go to Romans chapter 9. I know we'll get there at some point. We'll go to verse 14, Romans chapter 9, verse 14. Please note what happens in verse 13. What happens in verse 13 of Romans 9? Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, and immediately we say, that's not fair. If you've read the story of Jacob and Esau, you may be like, wait a minute, Jacob is not really a great guy. Can everyone agree? So why would God love Jacob and hate Esau? Verse 14, then Paul anticipates how someone may respond to this. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Immediately someone may say what? That's not fair. That's not right. I mean, let's make it very practical. God says, for I have loved Emma and hated Lydia. Now, all of a sudden, that gets really practical and real because we're talking about people in front of it. When we're talking about Jacob and Esau, we're like, yeah, yeah, whatever, right? Because that's... But when you talk about people you know, does that make you uncomfortable? Makes me uncomfortable. Yes? Okay. Especially if you're the one that's the hated. Right? Okay. All right, verse 15. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have... Compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth. No, we don't like that, do we? It's nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same pers- pers- purpose, if I can read correctly, have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore, Hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth? Now this gets to reprobation and starts getting into some very uncomfortable subjects. All right, Next verse. Thou wilt say unto me, why doth he yet find fault for who hath resisted his will? Right? And then it says, Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Basically, what this is demonstrating is who's responsible for salvation? God. It's not according to man's will, it's according to God. This begins to establish that in Romans 9. Yes? Right? And we could take the passage apart. Go to Romans 11. Same concept is going to show up in Romans 11. This is all preview of where we'll go at one point. Romans chapter 11, look at verse 36. Everybody ready? For of him, speaking of God, for of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. What's another, what is that saying? All things were made by him. They were made through him and to him or for him. Right? Everything is made by him, for him, and ultimately for what purpose? His glory. Very good. Someone just said it. For his glory. Right? That, I, I'm telling you, that's the key. That's the key to everything. Your purpose is God's glory. Your purpose is not you. It's not about your rights. It's not about what you want. It's about God's glory. man. that's so critical. And, and that starts with understanding salvation. Right? That's true. Listen, that's true in creation, and that's true in salvation. It's by him. It's for him. It's through him. And that's how we have to understand that. And, of course, we could go to a couple of other passages I have here. Go to Ephesians because we're, we're not going to be able to get to the next one, but that's okay. We all know this one, Ephesians 1, 1.4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having... Predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Why were you saved? His will. Why were you saved? You were saved because of his will, and you were saved for his glory. You were created for his glory, you were saved for his glory. Right? That's, that's your purpose in life. Okay, you don't need to, to read 40 Days of Purpose to take that long to figure it out. You can figure it out on day one. All right? Okay, you don't have to... People are like, what's my purpose? 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 Glorify God. And what? And, and everything you do. And then, of course, someone just got ready to quote the rest of the catechism. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. All right? Does that make sense? All right, now that brings us, oh man, we got people pulling up for the next hour and it's 10.58. I'll just stop. I'm just going to, the next one will be what? Does anybody know? The Emerald view. The Emerald view. That will be the next order that we have to look at um, and it has five steps in their, their plan, okay? But what's the main thing from the Arminian view? They replace God's sovereignty with, Foreknowledge, very good. They replace God's sovereignty with foreknowledge. And we understand, please, make sure you understand this. An Armenian who does that, don't view them as like, man, they just hate God and they hate theology. You, you can understand the struggle, yes? I mean, it's a struggle to go, well, why would God do this and why would God do that? Okay, that makes God look bad. So the motivation is good. They're, they're trying to get God off the hook. They're trying to make God look good. And I understand that desire, but it, it doesn't work that way. Does everybody understand that? It, it, you have to deal with what the scriptures teach, whether we like them or not. Do you, do you like everything in scripture? I, there's things I that. I, I, remember, remember what Luther said when they said, do you love God? Remember what Luther's famous line was? Love him. Sometimes I hate him because sometimes we have to deal with that reality. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Very difficult subject. But the scriptures make it clear that our salvation is because of you, it is by you, and it is for you. Let us live out our salvation as if it's truly for you and not simply for ourselves. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...